chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. We'll pick up at verse 17, and then if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's word, we'd appreciate it. Kings 18, starting at verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, and Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 450 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. And Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Let's pray, brothers and sisters. Please bow with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we dare to approach your holy, all-consuming presence solely on the gracious provision and the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize that we're not qualified or worthy to make requests of you as those who are former rebels against your rule. We turn to you because you have invited us to come to you. And we acknowledge your greatness and appreciate the mercies that we receive from you each day. They are without number. Might we ask you to give us grace by softening our hearts and speaking your word to us. Would you grant that we would, as a result of hearing your word, walk in the path that leads to life? And would you grant that you are exalted and glorified today and your people are edified by the word that is spoken? We ask these things in the mighty and awesome name of your son, our Savior, our God, our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So last week, uh, or the week before last, um, one of our church members' father passed away uh, unexpectedly. And uh, this past week, on Tuesday, we had the funeral uh, out in Palmyra. Uh, and Pastor James and I had the ability, I'm sorry, afforded the opportunity to go out and conduct that service uh, in Palmyra. Uh, and they, of course, the family was kind enough to allow me to do the eulogy for their father. Now, one of the ways that we do eulogies here at Living Water that I've learned from Pastor Mike over the years is we uh, want to do a eulogy that gives a good representation of the person's life. Uh, and then we end by sharing the good news of what God has done through Jesus because we realize that we're not sure in the room if there are those who are listening that are unaware of the good news. And so we take that opportunity to do that. Uh, and but one of the things that we do enjoy doing is, is getting a chance to retell the life of the person from an overview perspective. And, and that then entails us usually uh, scheduling time with the family and friends or those who've been around, who've been eyewitnesses of the person's life, taking time to hear various memories and stories. And over a period of hours, we collect the information that we can. And then we take hours to sit down and to make sense of all the memories, generally in a chronological order, to try to to give an overview of what this person's life looked like and how they had lived their lives 
in the days that they had here while they were alive on planet Earth. Now, as a person who's done a number of eulogies, uh, I have noticed something, which I think Pastor Mike has noticed as well, that uh, often as the person who's coming from the outside, hearing various memories from various people, and as you reconstruct the life and put it together, and of course it has human limitations to it based on people's memories and things like that, uh, there's often, as you seek to retell the story, there's often a pattern uh, that happens, and that is that there are certain themes that begin to stand out in a person's life. And often those themes come because of, as you are told various memories by different people, there are certain re repeated patterns of behavior in that person's life over time. And those things then become pronounced and ultimately tell us something about what this person was living for or who this person was living for. If I were to phrase that another way, I would put it in this way. Ultimately, what the story of their eulogy reveals, to some degree, to the degree that we have the memories accurately, reveals who or what they were serving in life. By serving here, I'm referring to uh, that there's something that all of us look to to guide the decisions and choices we make in life that is the strongest influence that directs the course of our life. And by that, whatever that thing is, or whoever that person is, ultimately serves functionally as our God. Now, we might not, we, whether we admit that or not, we all do serve someone. Uh, and whether we know it or not, and we're, it's obvious to, to ourselves as we look out and think about our own lives, those around us, by, by observing our life privately and publicly, when we put their memories together, uh, it tells a story of who we really are and what we've really done uh, in life. And it becomes evident at some point who or what it is we were serving. And there's various things that I've noticed in people's lives. Sometimes what they serve ultimately is money. Others, pleasure. Some, politics. Some people, they live their lives for themselves. Some, it's that they live their lives seeking to please or satisfy or gratify the desires of another person. For some, there are false gods that they've chosen to worship, and then there are some who chose to serve the true and living God. But we all make a choice in life to serve someone. And that story is then told with the writer's pen and the ink that flows from it. But with that in mind, in light of that reality, I want to encourage us all to make a conscience choice to live a life that is devoted to the service of the one true God. And I would like to offer you today three reasons why I would want you to make that choice with your life by utilizing the story we've just watched, as we'll recount it from the textual point uh, that I thought they did a good job in the video of doing, of uh, Elijah's encounter with the prophets of Baal. And I want to, of course, uh, start off by acknowledging and thanking Pastor Mike because uh, I was able to formulate my points because he... Uh, Heard, heard what I was talking about and then shared with me some ideas about what direction to go with the sermon. It helped me formulate those points, so I want to acknowledge him and give credit to him for helping me to do that. Let me start off with a little bit of context. Uh, of course, that didn't come up in the video, uh, and that's this. Uh, so we've been talking, uh, walking through the Old Testament at this point and looking at different people's lives. We have now shifted from the period of the judges last week to the period of the kings, as Pastor Mike recounted the events of David and Goliath. Uh, in this text now, we're over 100 years since that battle happened between David and Goliath. 
uh, and some interesting things have happened in the development of the nation. The nation no longer is one entity, but now has split into two. There's a nation to the north and a nation to the south. Israel uh, is the nation to the north, and to the south is Judah and Benjamin, now known just simply as Judah. And uh, the kingdom to the south is the one who is under, for the most part, under the rule of David's heirs. The kingdom to the north, at least for a number of years, is not under the rule of David's heirs, and that is by God's own design. What we find out is that when we come to 1 Kings chapter 17, there's this figure that appears in the Bible with no introduction. He just kind of shows up and bursts onto the pages of the Bible, and his name is Elijah. And because of that, we don't have much that we can tell you about his childhood, how he came into service of God. We don't have the same narrative about Elijah that we had about Samuel. So we just simply know about Elijah. We have a little bit of information, some enigmatic term that is used to describe him, a specific place that he potentially had come from, which not really sure where that is. But what we do know about him that is that he is a rare figure in Scripture. Uh, the last time we interacted with someone like him, of course, has been Samuel, but most likely has been Moses. He has a unique relationship with God that's different than most people have a relationship with God. Remember when God talked to Moses, uh, he didn't do as he normally did with human beings through dreams and visions and these types of things like that. Uh, what he talked, the way he talked to Moses was he talked to him like you and I talk. He talked to Moses face to face. And that's the kind of relationship that Elijah has with God. So we realize that he is a special place. But there's something else that's interesting about Elijah. Elijah is in a period of history, at least in Israel to the north, that's very, very similar to what was going on in Samuel's history during his time when he was serving God. And that is that the people have returned to a form of idolatrous worship. Uh, they're trying to hold on to Yahweh, and they're trying to hold on to Baal at the same time. And so their interests of faith are split. And like Moses, Elijah is concerned about the people's faithfulness to God. And so he stands up to rebuke the king uh, and his wife, Jezebel, this sinister woman who has led the people of Israel astray into this foreign worship of idolatry. Now, of course, because that is the case, the king and his wife stand in one position and Elijah stands in another position because they have two different worldviews. Their relationship is a contentious one. And that's exactly what we see in the text as they run into each other after a number of years. And that contention ultimately plays itself out in what is none other than a contest of the heavens. Yahweh versus Baal. Kind of makes us think back about the time of Samuel when there was Yahweh versus Dagon. And we remember how that turned out in 1 Samuel 5. And we're going to end up with a similar result here. But there's three key things that I want to point out from this text that are going to show us why, or at least I believe are three reasons why we ought to devote ourselves to the service of this person who is the true God. Uh, and the first reason we find that we ought to devote ourselves to the Lord, and I'll use the Lord here in the place of Yahweh, is because he has the position and the power. He has the position and the power. If I were to think about it another way, we might ask the question this way. When we look into heaven, if we could do that, which we can't, but if we could, who's the person who's sitting on the throne ruling over all, the invisible realm and the visible realm, whose will must be done? Who's the sovereign one, if we might put it that way? And the text answers that question definitively. So return with me to the Bible, to 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's start off with verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. 
And Elijah came near to all the people and say, said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even only, I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. As you saw in the video, which just uh, creatively demonstrated for us this in a, a very nice picturesque way, and I like pictures because I learned that way, uh, we see that the contest is pretty straightforward, right? Uh, it, it's what would happen in a normal uh, worship of the deity at that time. Uh, on one side of the field, we have a veil of this contest and his 450 prophets. And on the other side, we have the Lord and his one prophet, Elijah. And the contest is about sacrifice. Uh, they did what they normally would do was to offer up an animal on a stone altar. And the, in this case, unlike finishing the sacrifice like the offer would normally do by providing the fire, they said, no, no, the way this contest is going to work is the God is going to provide the fire. So we, the offer, are not going to do what we normally do. We're going to let the God who really is God answer. And whoever answers, that's the one that's God. So the fire has to be provided by the God, and that's how we'll identify who has the position and the power to be God. Because whoever this God is, he obviously has power over the elements which validates his position as the true God. Now let me offer to you a little bit more information about Baal that kind of puts this in perspective that helps us to understand why Elijah takes the the uh, pr approach that he does to this particular contest, which ultimately brings more glory to God as we see this contest play out. So what we know from a little historical background, from looking at some of the cities that were discovered that were ancient uh, near eastern cities, Ugarit and Ebla, uh, from the writings that we discovered there in Baal, uh, about Baal, that this contest actually plays to Baal's strengths. Uh, he was revered as the storm god who had control of lightning, which ultimately could bring fire, and he was supposed to be in control of the rain. And that's ultimately why Israel was looking to him, at least in this case. It would be almost like if I were to draw upon our modern culture those fictional figures from the DC universe and put them in contest. It would be like putting Superman in a weightlifting contest. It would be put like putting Flash uh, in a marathon race. It would be like putting Aquaman in a swimming contest. Uh, this should be a hands-down victory, no questions asked for Baal. This is right in his wheelhouse of what he does. We're not asking him to be the god over water. He's supposed to be the god of storm and fire and rain. This is exactly what he should do. Secondly, from the text, we also see that Elijah provides the prophets of Baal uh, advantages, and he intentionally disadvantages himself and the Lord in this contest. Let's look at verses 25 through 29. We see here, if you look there at the text, we see here that the prophets of Baal are first given the opportunity to act first. It would be like if we were in a sports game and this was a sudden death overtime and whoever scored first was the winner. And Elijah literally says, here, you can have the ball first. 
That's the kind of idea that we have going on. So Elijah allows time to be on their side. He gives them the first opportunity. He gives them the amount of time. They have no reason to say that they didn't have the advantage. He allows them ultimately to consume the majority, if not all, of the day until the very last minute so that they might have ample amount of time for Baal to answer. Now, when you look at those verses, you'll notice something happened, which was shared uh, in the video. About a few hours into this, after there's been no response from the God and the people are calling out to Baal and he's not said anything, Elijah begins to mock them. Uh, but not with things that they were unfamiliar with. From other, some of the ancient literature we know, these are things that Baal was known to do. They would not have been surprised by what Elijah was saying about Baal. Uh, so Elijah calls out, maybe the reason he's not answered you is because he's thinking. He's picked up the heavenly news. He caught something on, you know, the, uh, the heavenly internet. And, he, and he's, he's occupied right now. Or, or maybe he's busy. And, and then the way they played out in the video, maybe he's in the restroom. Uh, and, and maybe he, maybe he doesn't really, he, he, give him a few minutes. He, he's got to work some things out. Or, or maybe he left on vacation and you didn't notice the sign on heaven that said, be back in a few weeks, call me then. Or, or perhaps uh, Baal is in a good sleep. He's snoring loud and you've you got to overcome the snoring. And, and so you need to call out a little louder because he's just turned over and the sleep is getting good to him. So you've got to kind of to, to rattle him out of that so he can get up and answer you. But we see the result of their hours of labor when we look at verse 29. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. The writer wants us to get the message that there was no one was home. And thus, there was no answer, no fire, which leads us to the conclusion, no God. Now to the disadvantages we see Elijah, how he disadvantages himself. As I mentioned before, he takes second in the contest. He also allows God only a small window of time to respond. In addition to that, as we saw in the text, I mean in the video, in verses 33 through 35, we see an additional disadvantage he gives to the Lord. Verse 33, and he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So Elijah decides to do something that you would not think is the right thing to do. Uh, we're about to try to start a fire. We probably want to put something that's going to be fire worthy or make things uh, better for the fire. But that's not what Elijah does. He does just the opposite. He uh, drenches the sacrifice in water numerous times. Remember, we're looking for a fire answer here. But for Elijah, this is not an issue. Why? Because the God that he believes in is the creator of all the stars in the heavens. And simply... One of those stars could go supernova and easily wipe out all the planets in the near vicinity. So whoever this God is, who Elijah believes in, which is Yahweh, which the people seem to not know who he is, uh, he is able to respond with fire at no uh, great cost to himself. Uh, 
a water, a sacrifice drenched in water is ultimately no blip on the screen for him. It's not even a wave of his hand to, to take care of this. And that's how much confidence that Elijah has in him. And so Elijah simply, in response to the contest, prays to God. And we get the chance to hear the prayer and to see the result uh, in the text. I'm going to switch my translation just for a moment just to bring out some of the nuances of the text from the ESV to the NET as we hear Elijah's response, picking up at 18, verse 37. We see it there. Uh, Elijah starts off and says, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are the true God and that you are winning back their allegiance. Then fire from the Lord fell from the sky. It consumed the offering, the wood, the stones, and the dirt, and licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they threw themselves down with their faces to the ground and said, the Lord is the true God. The Lord is the true God. They are using the name of the Lord. So whatever this fire is, it was just no ordinary fire, but this, it was so intense that it burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stone, scorched the ground, and consumed all of the water. But this was an easy task because the Lord is God. And ultimately, because he has power over the elements and all that exists, he demonstrated his power to validate and verify his position as the God who actually is God. And we see that God has done this yet again in history through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through that, in that contest between the religious leaders and Jesus in that day, God verified by raising Jesus from the dead that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And in light of those realities, then the question becomes to us who, like the people of Israel, identify with the God of Israel, are there any Baal equivalents in our lives? I'm not talking about little statues in your home, and I hope that you don't have any statues in your home that you're bowing down to. I know I've run into a couple people, and I was shocked to find out that they do do that occasionally. There are people who do that. But there's probably something else going on in your life if there is something else in your life. And that is, there are there things that you're looking to for your security, for your safety, and for your prosperity in which you have placed your trust that ultimately belongs in the God of Israel alone. See, uh, as we look at the text, what's happening here is the people have not just trusted in the Lord. They're looking to Baal, uh, and so they're not obeying God's covenant because they believe that Baal can give them some security, some safety, and some prosperity by giving them rain to ultimately secure their future. And so they serve him in the way that was customary of that day. And so whatever that thing is in your life, is there anything else that might be substituting, acting like a bail in your life? Are you trying to trust in Jesus, but also trying to trust in whatever question mark there is here? And your loyalties are divided like the people of Israel. That brings me to the second reason that we ought to devote ourselves to serving the Lord. And that is because he has reliable character. One of the quickest ways I found through my personal life, through personal relationships over the years by making some very poor decisions is that when you're not a reliable person, it has a way of ending up breaking down relationships. 
And the reason it breaks down relationships is because people come to the conclusion that they cannot trust you. And that is often a bad thing. When, when a relationship loses trust, the relationship breaks down. And then that can happen in all kinds of relationships. It can happen in a political relationship, a business relationship. It can happen in friendships. It can happen in marriages. It can even happen in a parent-child relationships. Simply ask those children whose parents took advantage of them and used their social security numbers and ask them how that affected their relationship. But I was reminded of this uh, looking back at an article of an event that took place back in February 20th of 2006 in New York City when there was a group of uh, angry lower Manhattan parents who marched from their local elementary school to City Hall to protest uh, what the decision that they felt that the mayor had broken a promise to them. And so 150 parents, some other elected officials, went and marched downtown to City Hall to demand of the mayor that $44 million be returned to the city's budget for two projects because they felt that he had broken his promise to invest that money. Because he was not reliable, at least that's what they felt uh, in regards to that matter, in honoring the word that he had given. But what we see in the text is that the Lord doesn't operate that way. He's not like that. You can count on what he says. And this is exactly what we see in the prophet Jeremiah just succinctly stated for us. In Jeremiah, we find this written. And the word of the Lord came to me, that is Jeremiah, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. God is attentive to what his word says, the promises he's made, and the things that he said. He keeps them, if you will, all before him to ensure that in every human life and in every instance of human reality that his word is always kept just as he said. We see the same kind of thing here happening in our text. We see that work out in verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Israel, Isaac, of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and that I have done, notice here, all these things at your word. We see at the end of that verse that ultimately what, what is transpiring is not Elijah's plan, but God's plan. The reason that God doesn't fail Elijah is because God commanded him. Elijah simply obeyed, and God, because of his reliability, kept his word to Elijah. From the surrounding text, we see another example of how God is reliable and faithful to his people in keeping his word. And that's ultimately what precipitated this actual contest that led to this contest happening. For that, we have to go back to Moses' writing, which had happened a number of years before. But Moses has said this long before these people ever existed or their parents ever existed. But God had not forgotten that, and he related to the people based on what he had told them through Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. And Moses said to them, take care, lest your heart be deceived. And you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. And the land will yield no fruit. And you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Now in light of 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 1, chapter 18 verse 1, and the rest of what we see in chapter 18, the people are at a time of drought, and this is the, the turning point in that drought. But we realize the reason that there has been a drought or famine in the land because of the drought and lack of water 
has simply been because of the people's disobedience and their divided allegiance to Baal. They've been in idolatry, and God has kept his word that when they would do this and turn to idolatry, that it would cause him anger, and he would stop the rainfall. And for three years, that is exactly what they experienced, that the Lord always keeps his word. And this becomes extremely important to us in light of the fact that Jesus speaks because he is God. But I want to recall a specific instance, and that was to Martha, which has relevance to us today. In his talk to Martha, the sister of Lazarus, before Lazarus was raised from the dead, Jesus said this to her. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, that promise almost sounds unbelievable to us in the modern age, but it's true. Why is it true? Because God is reliable. And so Jesus' words can be counted on. And that becomes extremely important to each one of us when we consider, as I was reminded afresh this week, as I stood at the funeral with Pastor James, that we're all headed for eternity. That brings me to my final reason that I want to show you from the text, and that is that we ought to be devoted to the Lord because he loves. We ought to be devoted to the Lord because he loves. Now, we see at the end of verse 21 that the people, when Elijah called them to, to, to make a, a definitive choice between who is God, is it Baal or is it Yahweh, the God who formed you, who was Abraham's God, Isaac's God, Israel's God, is he God or is Baal God? The people were so confused, they, they were so turned around in their belief system that they did not respond because the, answer, the, the reality is they did not know the answer to that question. Uh, and in light of their idolatry, in light of their confusion of deities, they had suffered this drought for three years, which ultimately caused them hardship in their own lives. But what we do notice about this and the conclusion that we can draw from that is they're not the ones seeking the right um, solution to the problem that they're facing of a lack of rain. If they don't know what God is real and which God to go to, they're not going to know what is the right solution. And thus, that's why we're in this situation in the first place. It was their disobedience that led them into this situation. But it was the Lord who was the one that we see from the text that devised the plan that initiated the plan and enacted the plan so that the people could be put back into a right relationship with him because he wanted to bless them. That was God's idea. Let me quote to you 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, to show you this from the text. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the, the earth. Then we can drop down to verse 37 and read it again. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And here's the part I want to put emphasis on, and that you have turned their hearts back. This was God's idea. It's God's loving concern for the welfare of the people that initiates this contest because God, in keeping his word, will not allow the people to remain in idolatry and then him bless them. He's got to deal with the idolatry so that he can bless them. 
But notice, the people are not looking for God. They're not looking for a solution. They're content with the pain that they're experiencing in their lives. But it's God who in love and in mercy seeks to rectify the situation of his own initiative. What the text is clear of is they don't love God and they're not seeking, seeking God. Instead, it's God who loves them and seeks them. We see the same thing in the life of Jesus as we recall two familiar passages of Scripture. The Apostle John wrote it uh, in his letter. He said this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that, we, but that <clears throat> he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In his gospel, he said something similar to that uh, verses we learned in Sunday school when we were growing up as children that we had church exposure. One of the first verses we probably learned was this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But keep on reading. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What we find out in this story about Israel and their history, at least at this point in their specific history, is that they have something in common with us. Like the people of Israel, we did not seek God or seek to rectify our situation with God, even though we were in need and lost in our own form of idolatry. It was God who came up with the plan who initiated the plan, who enacted that plan, who accomplished that, accomplished that plan so that our broken relationship could be repaired because God wanted to bless us. But God was not going to go around his own standards of justice because we like to sin. God had to rectify that problem, and he did that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because God does that, because he has loved us in that way, then he is worthy of our devotion. And that's what I've been sharing with you throughout this message that I've given each reason. I've said that the proper response to God's power, which validates and verifies his position as the only true God, his character, of which I gave one example, his reliability, and his kindness uh, that we see, these are just a few of the reasons why we ought to be devoted to serving him and serving him alone. Now, I can't be thorough and talking about what this might look like in our lives. But let me give you a couple of thoughts to get us on the road in that direction. One of the things that Jesus says that we see where there's this kind of idea where God uh, juxtaposes uh, what might be idolatry and God as potential competing ideas of worship. We see it rise up in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he talks to a people of Israel in that day. Now for them, because of exile, they no longer battled again with this uh, idolatrous Baal worship. Th that was no longer a problem for them. God had taught them a, a strong lesson through the exile. And they came back, they weren't going to have that problem anymore. But there's something else that, that functions uh, as a Baal-type equivalent in the lives of the people and which Jesus warns them about in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Perhaps you remember it. It was in that text when he was talking about not worrying about this world and laying up treasures in this world. And it was in that context. And Jesus said that a person cannot serve two masters. And the reason why is because he will love one and hate the other. 
But it's when he gets to the end of that that he lays out a surprising twist about who the competing God is in the people's lives. He says, you cannot serve God, and in our translation, money. It has a broader context because you're talking about possessions or things, the things that we might look at to put our trust in to gain safety, security, and prosperity. Paul, in his later writings in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, in Ephesians uh, 5, 5, then warns Christians post-resurrection about this as a potential form of idolatry when he says this phrase that greed can be idolatry. One of the writers who investigated this term called Dr. Brian Rosner said this when he talked about greed as idolatry. He says, that is to have a strong desire to acquire and keep for yourself more and more money and material things is an attack on God's exclusive rights to the human love and devotion, trust and confidence and service and obedience. One of the temptations that we uniquely face in our culture that I think that that applies to us because of our unique relationship with consumerism in our culture, that often that Christians don't take their faith to bring to bear on this specific issue is that in our consumerism, what can begin to happen is that in that, we can begin to put our trust in the things we possess so that it functionally becomes the God that directs our lives, our passions, and our choices, although we acknowledge that the God of heaven still exists and we serve him. But he's not the one directing and driving our decisions in our daily lives. And when we enter into that and that becomes our object of trust, in that moment, we have entered into Baal worship. And we have become idolaters. We cannot have it both ways. Another passage that speaks to this idea of devotion is 1 John chapter 3. But the emphasis I want to focus on is verse 10. And there, what, what, what John lays out is, is another position here where it's a choice between two gods, Yahweh, the God of Israel, whose son is Jesus Christ and the devil. And what he says there in the text, it is, it is evident by the deeds of one's life which God they're actually serving. He says, we, we, we don't have to guess about who you belong to. Simply look at the deeds of a person's life, and it will tell you who's God, the God that they serve. And so what he encourages believers is, he says, the way that we know who belongs to God is that in their life, there is a evidence of righteousness and love. But those who continue in the practice of sinning and act like Cain and murderers and don't operate in love with other people... He says, it's clear who they are. They're the children of the devil. And so we see from this text that the way of righteousness and devotion then will come through a righteous life. As John says in chapter 2, you will live like Jesus lived, which is a life of holiness, righteousness, and love. That's what it means, at least in starting point, to be devoted to the Lord. Let me close with the illustration that I think, at least for me, brought the point home this week as I studied the message. 
of why we ought to be devoted to God in light of the last point that I just made. So on Thursday, I came home from work, as I do, and I was making it into our neighborhood. We have a 10-mile-an-hour speed limit because children play outside like when I was young. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm driving in, and I can see down the street, and I see my wife and the kids and my neighbors and the kids are, are outside, and, and they're playing as they usually do, enjoying the, that, that, that Texas heat in Pennsylvania. <laughs> I, I've enjoyed the week because it just reminded me of home. You know, I have those days. Uh, and so we get home, and I've got the air on as, as I normally would in uh, Texas with the AAC blazing, blowing on me, keeping me cool as I drive down the street slowly. And I, I pull up to my driveway, and I, I pull in, and my kids are super excited, and they're, they're beating on my window. They want me to get out of the car, and I'm on the phone with my mom, and I'm like, what's up? You know, like I'm talking to my mom, like, chill for a minute. Calm down, kids. So anyway, I, I finally like, hey, mom, I got to go. The kids want me. I don't know what's going on. So I get out of the car, and the kids are super excited because something has happened, and they want me to, to know about it. So they're both trying to tell me about the fact that they discovered this baby bird across the street. This baby bird had fallen out of the nest. I don't know how it got out of the nest. Maybe it was just starting to practice flying. It was not successful. And it was there on the ground. And they wanted to tell me about the fact that this bird was over here chirping this baby bird outside of the nest. Now that was somewhat concerning for them because as they realized and as, as others realized, that if this situation was not rectified, then this baby bird would ultimately starve to death or join the food chain, right? And, and that was kind of the situation. Now, we had no obligation to save this baby bird. That's kind of how the world works at times. But we could hear the cries for help as it chirped. Now, my wife and our neighbor, one of our neighbors, she, she would, they, they, they were moved with compassion. And perhaps that's just the way mothers are because they're, just, they're mothers all the time. And their hearts were moved with compassion. So our neighbor, she started to crowd, call around to different organizations to see if anyone would help to save the life of this baby bird. She finally found a place after some research and, 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 and made an agreement with them that they would bring the baby bird out. And so my wife and, and, and our neighbor, they got together, they got a box, and they put some stuff in it. And they went over and carefully picked up the baby bird and put the baby bird in a box. And they, they got into an air-conditioned car, and, uh, and they drove 45 minutes to a place that was willing to care for this baby bird. And then they drove 45 minutes back home. Uh, where this wildlife reserve would take care of it. Now, in the, in the story, what, what caught me is the fact that this baby bird had nothing to offer them. There was nothing that the baby bird could do for the kindness and love that they had shown. It was because of their compassion, no obligation of their, that they had to this baby bird. The parents had not decided to, to intervene, or perhaps they didn't have the power to intervene to rescue him from the situation he was in. But at personal cost to themselves and in gas and in time and in effort, they paid the cost so that a life could be saved, one who had no benefit to them. Brothers and sisters, I want to let you know and just remind you that you and I were in the same position as that baby bird. We were helpless in our sin with no way out. 
Some of us helpless in addiction. Some of us helpless in our self-righteousness. Some of us helpless in our pride. Some of us helpless in our seeking of pleasure. Some of us helpless in our idolatry. Whatever it was that we were helpless in, we couldn't get ourselves out. And death was on the horizon because God's judgment is coming upon the world. And there was nothing that we could do to save ourselves. Our parents were powerless to rescue us from the impending disaster that was coming upon us. But someone of greater power and greater resources intervened because, not because he was obligated, but because he had compassion. And he did and paid the cost that was necessary so that our lives could be saved. That's what we see in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. God reaching down in compassion to take those of us who are helpless to rectify the situation, to save ourselves, and come in and do it at cost to himself. Now, brothers and sisters, like the baby bird, we don't have anything to pay back God that he would want from us. There's nothing that God needs from us. The only reason God did it is because of his own great compassion. And in light of that, we can never pay God back for the goodness and kindness that he's shown us. We can never do enough works to tell God, thank you, because nothing we can do could pay him or offer to him anything for the kindness and cost that he pays. But what we can do, brothers and sisters, is acknowledge it. We can be thankful for it. And what we can say is, God, I can never pay you back for the love and compassion you've shown me because I can never rectify that situation. But what I can do is live a life of devotion out of gratitude to you because you rescued me when I could not rescue myself. Brothers and sisters, it was God who stepped in when you cried out like that baby bird. He heard you chirp and he stepped in and rescued you so that you could have life and continue to live. And that's why he's worthy of your devotion and his alone. Let's pray. Father, I, I want to thank you. Uh, as we prepare to close this service out now, Lord, as we get ready to say the benediction, that God, uh, we are grateful for the way that you have rescued us. And done it at personal cost to yourself. And we can never pay you back. May we be mindful of that this week. I want to ask you to go ahead and stand now. Let me read the blessing over you and then we'll dismiss you as we've gone over time. And I apologize for going over a little bit today. The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And may he grant to you the peace that Christ has given Go in God's peace this week. We bless you. You're dismissed. We'll see you.